Now, over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been watching as David, King David, has to navigate through various challenges on his way to the throne. We're in the middle of these chapters at the start of to Samuel, and two very key themes have come across as we've been reading this. One is that David has a very deep respect for God's words, and the other is that he has a very deep trust in God's timing to make him king over everything. And these two attributes of David are the kind of attributes that make him the outline of the right kind of king. This is what we've been seeing. But before we dive into the complexity of the passage that we just read, I want to explore a little bit more why we need to learn this lesson, why we need to be told about this king who waits patiently for God to establish a kingdom. And how does it kind of help us in the 21st century, if you like. Because the immediate temptation might be to sort of apply it directly to ourselves, uh, if you like. We expect the Bible to give us kind of takeaway points each week. And so a lesson like wait for God's timing sounds like something you can sort of take away um, and apply directly to yourself. Just as David was patient, you need to be patient as well. And we can do that, but we have to be a little bit careful about the way that we read this story and bring it forward, because our instinct might be to kind of find an equivalent match in our own lives and apply it to the specifics. So for example, you might think, well, David has to wait many years before he becomes king over all of Israel. Well, that means that I might have to wait many years before, well, not that I become king over Israel, because that doesn't really make sense, but maybe before I get a promotion or before I get married uh, or before I get that uh, opportunity that I've been looking for, or whatever it is, whatever goal it is that you're looking for. Do you see what I mean? You translate it forward as if you're the equivalent of, of David. Just as David has to wait to be king, I wait for God to do this thing for me. But we have to be careful because it doesn't work quite like that. Because God hasn't made individual promises to us in the way that he does to David. This is a very specific story about God raising up a king to rule over his people, not so much a template for how all of our lives will work as individuals. You see, we need to keep plugging this into the bigger picture of everything else that's going on in the Bible as as we read through. All this stuff about God putting the right kind of king in place is in service of a bigger project that God has running through the whole of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament and the rest of the Bible. Why did God call Israel out of slavery in Egypt in the first place? Why did he do that with Moses and the Red Sea and the plagues and everything? What was the point? Because he wanted to get a nation that would serve him in the midst of this world. And so therefore this story in 1 and 2 Samuel of the patient build-up until you get the right kind of king who will lead this people, well, that's enormously important in the bigger picture of everything that's going on. And this in itself is, of course, a necessary step for what God is doing for the whole world through this story as well. We saw it in Hannah's prayer at the start of 1 Samuel, if you remember. Hannah said, The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. His plan all along has been to sort everything out. How will he do it? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we can't decouple this story about David becoming king from the sort of larger narrative 
of what's going on and just make an equivalent to ourselves. This is a story about God. It's about God's plans for the world. Which might then make us think, well, okay, well, where do we fit in then? What part do we play in all of this? Why do we need to know this? And the answer is basically that we wait along patiently with the king. Imagine you're one of David's men, for example, in the story. What are you waiting for? You're not waiting that you yourself will be promoted to be king. No, you're getting on with whatever job it is that you've been given, sharpening the spears or looking after livestock or whatever it is, waiting for the moment when David becomes king, because then you will inherit his kingdom and all the blessings that come along with it. You're not going to end up on the throne, but you will get the benefits when David does. And what would that look like today then? Well, it's Jesus on the throne now rather than David. The story has moved on in the Bible. But we're still waiting for God to fully establish Jesus' kingdom in all of the world. And it might take a while. It might go well beyond our lifetimes. But we wait along with the king as that happens. What does that mean for us? Well, it might mean that you know you might get that promotion along the way. You might spend your life just doing spreadsheets. That's okay. You get on with the job that God has given you. And you wait for the full fulfillment of everything when Jesus' kingdom is fully established in all of the world. Because it's in the end when God raises his children from the dead. That's when we will inherit everything that God has planned for us. So we need to be a little bit careful as we sort of think this forward, where we play our part in the story. The story of getting the right king in place is right at the center of all of this. And as we do that, we need to make sure we understand why the king is making the decisions that he's making. And particular, in particular, why he isn't making sort of shortcuts along the way, which is particularly important for the passage now that we're looking at today. So let's dive into what we have now at this point. You'll remember from last week, hopefully if you were here, that we made heavy use of the sort of glossing over tool, as I called it. We looked just at the kind of skeleton of chapters two to five of two Samuel because um, we were getting the kind of the gist of David becoming king. But I warned us that there's this sort of murky underbelly that's going on in these chapters, which we've seen a bit of uh, today, because David sort of takes a back seat in these chapters and two other characters come forward into the limelight instead. We have Joab, who's the commander of the armies of the house of David, and Abner, who is the commander of the armies of the house of Saul under the leaders of Ishbosheth. Now, I've drawn you a few um, cartoons this week to sort of help storyboard this, because in the planning meeting, somebody said that it's really hard to remember just who different people were, because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of very weird names. Often happens when you're reading this part of the Bible, there's lots of names like Abishai and Asahel and things like that, and then sort of David, who seems like the one Englishman who's been kind of dropped into the story. <laughs> It's a little bit hard to kind of follow along with what's going on. So anyway, we're going to storyboard it a little bit as we go. Um, But anyway, Joab and Abner come into the limelight in what's going on here. Now, there's a much simpler way to tell this story, because one chronicles in the Old Testament doesn't bother with them at all. But the author of 2 Samuel really wants us to get exposed to this background of what was going on as David became king, and all the complexity and all the difficulty and all the stuff that David has to wade his way through. And I warn you that as you read these, this is not pleasant reading. Uh, to be honest with you, I would prefer not to preach on a passage that has murder and brutality and sexual immorality and deceit 
And these chapters have got these things going on all over the place. But it's all here for a reason. The author of 2 Samuel wants us to see that this is what David had to come through. So here we go then. We need to begin by rewinding the clock a little bit then and dropping in to chapter 2 at the point where these two kingdoms have been set up. Saul's house and David's house. Now, as you might imagine, that diagram probably looks all a little bit Game of Thrones. And as you might imagine, when two kings are sort of coexisting in the same space, that's not going to last very long. A conflict's going to break out sooner or later. And so it is. Even though David's deliberately trying not to engage with the house of Saul, in chapter 2, Abner takes his army and starts heading in direct, that direction. And he basically has no choice. He has to send Joab with his, Abner, uh, with his army. And they meet together, these two armies, at a place called the Pool of Gibeon. And they try to sort of work things out um, a little bit by setting up a contest that was a way of avoiding a full-scale battle, but it doesn't really work. And they get a huge battle on their hands, whether they like it or not. It's an awful moment where this fierce battle breaks out. And at the start of chapter 3, we read that this battle leads to a great war, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, which lasts for a long time during this period. Furthermore, something else happens during the battle um, at this point, which is that Joab's brother Asahel pursues Abner and he refuses to give up the chase. And Abner warns Asahel that if he doesn't turn to one side, then he's going to have to strike him down. He doesn't want to, but he's going to have to do it out of self-defense. That's what ends up happening. He strikes him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. And I'm sorry for spelling out the detail of it. It's gory. Um, But we'll need to come back to that detail again in a few minutes' time. The initial battle gets uh, uh, subdued after that, but there's still this war going on and this aftermath of this particular death, which is going to become important in a minute or two. Then as we move on into chapter 3, another twist happens. A dispute breaks out within the house of Saul between Abner and the king Ishbosheth. Abner is basically in charge of the house of Saul at this point. He's realized that their position is getting sort of weaker and weaker. And this is the last straw for him, this dispute. And so Abner decides that he's going to come to David and to make a deal with David instead. And he offers a covenant with David. He says this in chapter 3, verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is this? What he means by that is, it's basically my land. I'm basically in charge now. Make an agreement with me, a covenant with me, and I will help bring all of Israel, all of Ishbosheth's side, over to your side. And David takes the decision, which may look to many like weakness. He agrees to Abner's deal, and he lets him go off in peace. And we know that that looks like a terrible political decision to some, because in verse 22, Joab enters the scene again, and he presents a different point of view. And this is where we get into the passage that we just heard read. Now, this is our first major exposure that we get to Joab uh, in the Bible. And Joab is not a a bit part character. I think he's probably the, the most mentioned, least known character, if that makes sense. He's, he's the 15th most mentioned person in the Bible. He's mentioned more times than anybody else in the New Testament other than Jesus, Paul, and Peter. So he's not a minor character in all of this. He plays a huge part in David becoming king. And he's a bit of an ambiguous character. 
Because he's a great warrior, sometimes courageous, dependable. But sometimes he's there in the story because he's offering an alternative way of doing things from what David wants to do. And this is the part of the story where he encapsulates a very key response to what's going on with Abner, which is that might is right. This is Joab's way. Might is right. Joab's just arrived back from a raid while Abner was going and visiting David. And when he hears that David sent Abner away in peace, he just can't believe what he's heard. He can't believe his ears. Notice that the author really wants to draw our attention to the fact that David has sent Abner away in peace. Have a look down at verse 21. So David sent Abner away and he went away in peace. Then verse 22, David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. Then verse 23, the king had sent him away and he had gone in peace. And Joab says to David in verse 24, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, the son of Ner. You know who he is. You know what kind of person he is. He came to deceive you, obviously, to observe your movements, to find out everything that you're doing. That's why he came. For Joab, this is a bonkers decision that David has made. Think about it. Abner has remained loyal to the house of Saul throughout everything. It's political madness to let him go, whatever he says. In a situation like this, might is right, isn't it? You have to assert your strength, David. The safe option is simply to take Abner out and then press your advantage and go and take the rest of the kingdom by force. Nobody likes doing it that way, but that's the way to get the job done. And of course, Joab has a secondary motive in all of this as well. He also believes that he should be avenged personally. Remember that to Joab, Abner isn't simply a dangerous threat to the nation. He's also the man who killed his brother Asahel in the battle. Yes, he did it in self-defense, but Joab doesn't care about that. He wants revenge. This is the normal way the world works. And so in verse 26, Joab sends a messenger to Abner calling him back under the appearance of David's authority. And when Abner comes back to Joab, he takes him aside into the shadows of the gatehouse and quietly, without fuss, without show, another murder is committed. And again, I apologize for dwelling on the detail, but notice in verse 27 that he strikes Abner in the stomach. Is that ringing any bells? We'll come back to it. But how does David respond to this? For David, this is yet another disaster. Because he has a different idea of how things should operate. David thinks that reconciliation is right. When David hears of what Joab has done, have a look at what he says in verse 28. I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and his whole family. And what follows is that David puts on a full state funeral for Abner. Torn clothes, sackcloth, ashes. David himself follows the bier and weeps by the side of the grave. And after a little while, when somebody comes along and suggests that that's probably enough grief for Abner now, and why don't you come and have a sandwich, David? 
He refuses to eat anything. In verse 35, he says, May God deal with me ever so severely if I taste bread or anything before the sun has set. Now, once again, we're left slightly puzzled at why David is so devastated at the death of the man who was his enemy. We've kind of understood now why David mourns the death of Saul, because he was the Lord's anointed, and the death of Ishbosheth in the following chapter, because he's the son of the Lord's anointed. But mourning this much for Abner is sort of pushing it a little bit, isn't it? Abner isn't the Lord's anointed, he's a very ambiguous character. And once again, arguably, David's been done a favor by having him gotten rid of. I mean, who knows whether he would have been trustworthy or not. But look at the words that David uses to lament Abner in verses 33 and 34. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. You see, the thing that David is so grieved by is probably not any personal affection for Abner, but the sense of waste and futility that Abner's death represents in all of this. Should Abner die as the lawless die? Should he die like a criminal? His hands weren't bound. No, in verse 38, David brings everyone to their senses. The king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man in Israel has fallen today? He was the most influential people in the northern region by this point. He was in the process of rallying Israel to get behind David. And he was a great man, a commander, as part of a nation that really we're all a part of. What a waste. And the key detail we're told in all of this, that David is on the right lines, comes in verse 36. You have to pay attention to details like this as you read through the story, because you get a lot of story, and then the author will throw in something that shows you what you're supposed to take away. Verse 36. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, the people there knew, all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, the son of Ner. Why does it please the people? Is it just because David's a bit of a softy? No, it's because David is trying to run his kingdom not by the sword, not by the normal underhanded means of having people assassinated when they become a threat or if you want revenge or if you just don't agree with them. And in verse 39, David spells out the difference between him and Joab. Have a look at it. Today, though I am anointed king, I am weak, meaning I am gentle. But these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. Or a better translation might be they are more severe than me. My way is gentle, Joab's way is harsh. You see the difference. Joab and his brothers, they are taking the harsh approach. What kings would normally do, it still happens today, as well we know when we look at our news feeds. But David says, even though I have been anointed king, the implication being I have this sort of power at my disposal, normally kings would do this, they would just eliminate opposition. I'm going to take the gentle approach. I'm going to put aside personal grievance for the sake of the bigger picture of what is going on. Is it also weak? Did Joab have a point that Abner might not have been trustworthy? 
Perhaps he did, we'll never know. But David is desperate to decouple himself and his kingdom from this stupid perpetual cycle of killings amongst people who are supposed to be one family. If it meant striking a deal with Abner, well, so be it. And of course that pleased the people, because here is a king who doesn't simply care about his own position. He cares about the quality of this kingdom that he is leading, the values, and in particular the way that it's reflecting how God wants it to be run. Okay, so why are we seeing all this mess behind the scenes then? Let's try and draw things together a little bit at the end. Why not simply do it like one Chronicles and kind of just fast forward to David becoming king? You could do it that way. Well, the book of 2 Samuel really wants to dig up the difficult past on the way to David becoming king. In particular, the reason it wants to do this is to show the way that the whole of the nation of Israel almost collapsed into infighting at the point when the monarchy was being established. It almost all collapsed. And the point that we're supposed to take away from this isn't that David is some sort of pacifist. His defining moment was when he took out the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel. Songs were sung about him in the rest of 1 Samuel about how David has slain the Philistines in his tens of thousands. David was very far from being a pacifist because God had commissioned him to bring judgment upon those nations. But with Abner's death, it's different. Why is it different? Again, we need to plug this into the bigger narrative of the Bible to really appreciate what's going on. Israel in the Old Testament began as one family that God had called, the sons of Jacob. United together, their job was to be a kingdom of priests in the midst of a world that's full of conflict and has gone wrong in lots of different ways. They were supposed to be a sort of a beacon of light in the world, a light to the nations, as the prophet Isaiah would put it later. But wrong decisions made by Saul have led to stomach stabbing and a war. Four times we've had men dying by being struck in the stomach in these chapters. Saul fell on his own spear. Abner struck Asahel in the stomach during the battle. Joab has now done it to Abner. And if you remember in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, Ishbosheth is struck in the stomach while he's on his bed as well. It's gory, but it's become a motif for senseless and wasteful death among men who ought to have been treating each other as brothers. All the sons of Jacob. And this was all the product of Saul's decision to pit the nation against one another. If he had simply honored God's decision and given the kingdom to David, none of these deaths would have been required. Now, war is miserable at any time and any place. Some of us will have experienced it firsthand, I'm sure. Some of us will have loved ones around the world um, who have seen it close up, uh, up front, and you know how awful and miserable it is. Nobody wants a war to last longer than it has to. But the war going on in these chapters is especially tragic because this is brothers fighting against one another. It's turned into Benjamin, the tribe of Saul, versus Judah, the tribe of David. If you go all the way back to Genesis in the Bible story, there was once a moment where Judah offered to give his life for Benjamin. You remember that from Joseph and the Technicolor Dream? You don't remember the song? Now some of you are distracted thinking about the song, so stop thinking about the song. Judah offers to take Benjamin's life. Uh, Sorry, to take Benjamin's place. 
And now look at where it's all going. God's whole project for his people looks like it's on the brink of collapse. Interestingly, in the middle of the original battle, Abner realizes where all this is going. And he says, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing your fellow Israelites, he says to Joab. And whilst Abner and Joab come to their senses in that moment, and they stop the initial fruitless battle, the ongoing war just couldn't be avoided, so it seems. What we're seeing is it needs a king like David to be able to bring it all together. A king who puts personal grievances to one side and sets his sights on uniting this people together and getting them back to worshipping God together. And if we flick forward very quickly to chapter 5, verse 1, and the passage that we read last week, look at what the northern tribes of Israel say when they eventually do come to David. They say this, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people, Israel. And you shall become their ruler. This is what the people need. They're all one flesh and blood. What they need is a shepherd-like king to lead them. A humble shepherd-like king. That's what David looks like here. And the reason that David is given such a high profile in the Old Testament, his name comes up the most other than God's, is because for a brief window in the story, he shows us what the king needs to look like to hold this people together. In two generations' time, it will all fall apart again. David's grandson will mess it up, and the old feud that started at the pool of Gibeon between Abner and Joab, that will all be reignited again. You can read on into one kings. And the kingdom will split in two once again, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And that's the way that it goes for the rest of the Old Testament. But in the middle, you have this outline of the kind of king who will unite God's people together as one. Theologians sometimes talk about preaching Christ from the Old Testament and discuss how we ought to do it. Well, there's no mention of Jesus in this passage, and yet you can see a template emerging, can't you? For what the greater son of David needs to look like and what he needs to not look like. Why did later generations of Israelites take so much time and care to write this down to tell the story of what David was like including the murky underbelly because they could see that they needed another David an even better one after the nation had been plunged into division ever since that all of this is preparing the way and showing us why we need a king like Jesus a king who also made his absolute priority to reconcile all his people together and to reconcile them back to God again That's God's plan for how the world will work. How does Jesus do that? Of course, by his body on the cross. Let's pray to finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the ultimate son of David, the one who brings all your children together and reconciles them at the cross to you, to one another to be their king, to lead them forward in this project that you have for the whole world. And we pray, Father, as we play our part, that we would wait patiently along with Jesus and that we would follow his guidance, his rule, 
his leadership, knowing that it's the right one, as that we've followed this story through and seen what the wrong alternatives could have been. We pray for your help as we reflect on this. In Jesus' name, amen.